and ascended to the Father's right hand. That's who we are. Uh, we work really hard at being really simple and really good at what God has called us to be. Uh, we don't have a bulletin full of activities. If you're looking over a bulletin maybe for the first time, uh, we do have some activities that are important. I think they're, um, they'll be fruitful. But we, our goal is not to keep you busy. Our goal is to walk well as a people and enjoy the Lord and walk in the teaching and preaching of his word, to walk in community. And um, if you're looking for something that's a little leaner maybe, uh, this might be a good fit for you. If you're looking for something that's going to keep you busy every night of the week, that's not our goal. Okay, so, but I encourage you afterward, if you're searching for a church home, to visit this little table on the way out and uh, to grab some information there. We have some, uh, some stuff we put together to sort of try and capture who we are as a people. So I would invite you to grab that on your way out this morning. We're going to uh, continue our morning in prayer and then sermon. And I'm kind of give you a plan for the morning. Uh, I told uh, Clint and the worship team this morning that I feel like I've been doing this 15 years. And I still feel like I'm flying a plane for the first time every Sunday with a load full of people in the, in the plane. So I hope that this plane takes off and lands as I intend this morning. Um, it's a fragile thing, this, thought, this preaching thing, and it's um, an ancient text, and trying to make sense of that is uh, sometimes precarious. So I hope that this morning that the plane flies, it's not too bumpy, that we get, get where the destination is. So I'm going to pray about that as well. We're going to pray for uh, the Spivey family that we uh, brought up a couple Sundays ago, a, a friend that was hit on a, a bicycle just down the road, uh, passed away this week. Uh, we're going to pray for his church, for Park Street Baptist Church. We're going to pray for another pastor of um, uh, what used to be Johnson Street Church of Christ, and I forget the name of the new Creekside. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to pray for Randy. Uh, he found out this week he has an opera. I guess it's inoperable. It sounded like it was pretty advanced brain tumor. So we want to pray for that church. We want to pray for those families and those pastors and uh, all the folks that are involved with those ministries. Let's pray. God, first of all, this morning, uh, in, in regards to prayer, Lord, I want to just pray for Randy Dahl and his family. Lord, I uh, am just, um, I'm imagining what he must be thinking through and his, what his family must be feeling right now. Um, and Lord, I'm just praying that what you will just fill them with is this overwhelming peace that can only come from you, that um, you are still on your throne that you are still seated and reigning and ruling, and that Randy, in your time, and not a day earlier and not a day later, will be with you. God, I pray for his church. We lift up his church this morning, Creekside. We pray that you would bless that church, that they would enjoy you fervently in this season, that they would trust you relentlessly. Lord, we pray that you would draw people through this season of difficulty and sickness into that church family, Lord, that they would see and hear the beautiful sound of a people that are trusting in you. Lord, we pray the same thing for Park Street Baptist Church this morning as they together are worshiping for the first time, having said, uh, or having lost officially Jason. Um, Lord, I pray for his family. We lift up the Spiveys and pray that you would bless them in this loss somehow. Lord, I pray that you would sustain them in a way that only you can. Lord, I pray that their church would be a salty, bright, aromatic uh, vessel uh, to this community of a people that are trusting in you, even in and especially in loss. God, we are entrusting these two churches and these families to you. 
Lord, also, I just pray that in these next few minutes that this, uh, this unbelievably beautiful passage of Scripture will be something that you will use for your glory to shed a wonderful light on the greatness of Jesus. I will turn this time over to you, Lord. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. My goal this morning, uh, I want to give you kind of a, an audible map of what we're going to be doing this morning. I think it's helpful to kind of be able to visualize where we're going to sort of pace yourself. I did bring vitamin water up here for a beverage, so that is a hint. It really is that regular water wouldn't do for the next few minutes. So, um, and in fact, let me get a little sip right now for real. That's a joke, but kind of not. Matthew chapter 2, here's the plan. I'm going to give you an, uh, a plan. Uh, we're going to ease into the pool the first part of the sermon. We're going to climb into Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the second half of the chapter. We looked at the first half last week. We're going to just kind of have a light handling of that um, passage. It really is developed in three chunks, little three little vignettes. So I'm going to have kind of a light narrative as I work through those three little vignettes. Okay, and then we're going to follow Matthew's lead in trying to make sense of the points that he's making from these passages as he's leaning back into Old Testament story. Okay? That's our, that's our plan. So let's start with Matthew chapter 2, climbing in the, the pool together. Now when they, and this is the wise men, had departed. Okay, if you remember the passage from last week, the wise men see a light. They follow this light. They go to Jerusalem first. They ask, where is this newborn king, the king of the Jews? And they go visit the Christ child. We're sort of picking up at that point. Now, when they, the wise men, had departed, that's departing Bethlehem, departing visiting Jesus and the Holy Family. When they, the wise men, had departed, behold, suddenly. I want you to just kind of think about that word suddenly. In this case, the word behold is twice in this passage we're going to be looking at today. And you can think of it as sort of a sudden thing. This is an exciting few hours that are unfolding in this first vignette. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So just kind of capture this. The wise men walk out the door. Joseph and holy family go to bed. Okay, They climb in the bed. And Joseph, the dreamer, like an Old Testament Joseph named, or named, uh, dreamer named Joseph, has a dream. Suddenly, the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose. There's no sense that he even took a minute. I mean, he just, period, rose. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. The language here points to an immediate response. It's as if the wise men walked out of the door and then Joseph and family walked out of the door, likely that very night. These guys were poor folk. I mean, you need to understand these new parents, they probably didn't have. I was thinking of all the stuff that we used to travel with when we were new parents. Uh, uh, Johnny Jump Up, which is probably not even legal anymore. I don't even think they make them anymore. Luke leaped out of his completely. We found him on the floor underneath it. 
Okay, but we traveled with that joker, man. That was good medicine. It was a great babysitter. The pack and play, okay, we got that. You got to sleep in that. You got a high chair. You got a motorized swing. You got that. I wrote down circular play thing, and then I remembered later it's called an exorcer. You have to have a really big car when you have a baby in this day and age. But in that day, man, they didn't have any of that stuff. No diapers, no wipes. They didn't have any of that. They pick up light and agile, and they fled to Egypt. And Egypt, it turns out, was a great place for Jews to find refuge, ironically, from the horrors of Rome and the horrors of Herod. Apparently, at this time, there was a a community of about a million Jews living in Alexandria, Egypt. That's crazy. A million Jews just by this time. So they flee to Egypt, and the passage here that's quoted comes from Hosea chapter 11. Now, there's going to be two places that we go this morning that we spend most of our time, and Hosea is one of those two places. So I want to go ahead and give you the page number that will work in the Bible that's under the seat bottom in front of you. If you have a different Bible or a different version, you're on your own. But it's Hosea chapter 11, and it's page 757. So you can go ahead and bookmark that and be ready for that chapter because that's where we're going to spend some time this morning in Hosea chapter 11. Okay, let's go back to, we're still in Matthew chapter 2. So let's go back to our next little vignette. That's the first little vignette. Here's the second one. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or or under, according to the time that they had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, Herod is clearly hacked. This guy is power hungry. He sees a threat to his power, and he wants to have these children and this particular child killed. He's furious and had all the children under the age of two in Bethlehem murdered. Now, Bethlehem was not a big city. Estimates were that it was about 1,000 people Uh, population at that time, and that that would probably amount to about 20 boys or less under the age of two. Okay, so that's probably why this hasn't made extra biblical sources. If you see ancient um, historians, they don't recount the slaughter in Bethlehem because it was pretty small scale. And Herod was such a monster, this would have hardly made the news. We're talking about some seriously graphic and violent times. Man, their attentiveness, I'm just thinking in the New Testament context, their attentiveness to the matters of life and death must have been profound. Man, would that we had that sort of attentiveness. Maybe we should. Think about the prayers we just prayed beginning this sermon. Man. Man. All right, so the quote is from Jeremiah. It's a little tiny little sermon within a sermon. Jeremiah chapter 31. The quote is what that's from. And Matthew is the only New Testament writer to name Jeremiah in connection with a quotation. Okay, so this is a pretty special reference. And this is going to be the other place that we spend some time this morning in Jeremiah chapter 31. The page number for that, so you can kind of be ready, is on page 658 of your uh, little Bible underneath your seat, 658. So you can have that of another bookmark in that spot. Okay, now the third vignette from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. 
But when Herod died, behold, there it is again, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay. At the time of Christ's birth, Herod was likely in his last year or so of life. Okay. If you were here last week, you remember this story kind of picking up on, on where Herod was. This guy was crazy in his final years. He was really a mess. He died with, within a relatively short period of time after Christ's birth. And by this point, um, was dead. Okay. So Archelaus is a surviving son of Herod. Okay. He was recognized as the ethnarch uh, over Judea and Galilee by Rome after Herod's death. And this guy was such a terrible person, he made Herod look good. He was so bad that Rome canned him. Okay, so he was, he was the, the ethnarch just for a very short period of time and was replaced eventually by Herod Antipas, the more familiar Herod of the Gospels. Okay, so at this point, there's another suddenly here, and he moves again. This is the second time where he gets a sudden dream, a sudden command, sudden notice that you better move out, and he suddenly responds in like kind. I mean, immediately, he moves out. Okay, so he moves his son and wife to Nazareth. And at this point, I'll, I'll refer to this a few times over the course of the morning. He moves his son and wife to Hawk Cove, Texas. Okay, I'm going to explain that in a minute. Okay, to Hawk Cove, Texas. Okay, and the quote here isn't actually a direct quote. Unlike the other two quotes who are actually direct quotes from Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31... This is not actually a direct quote. Now, it's in quotation marks, but the, the form in the original language is a little bit different. He uses prophets, plural, unlike the other quotes. Okay? And also, there's this added issue that there is no quote in the entire Old Testament that he shall be called a Nazarene. So something is different and unique about this final reference, he shall be called a Nazarene. And we'll deal with that here in a moment. Okay, now let me just uh, go ahead and put up that first slide, Jeff, and I'm going to develop it. This is what I would call a geographical chapter. Okay, so I have some, uh, some geography. This is really, really going to be informative. I mean, it's really going to be helpful. It might be, it's actually a visual. I like visuals. They help me. So uh, even when I'm preparing a sermon, even though I don't share it with you, likely I'm drawing some visuals to help me make sense of it. Okay, so here's, the, here's the, the, uh, the key or the legend of the map, Okay. Gandalf et al. All right, the, the three wise men, they were actually given a name in the 6th century. Each of them were given names, and I just felt like Gandalf should be one of them. It turns out it's not, but I, that's the way I, one of them, I, in my mind, is Gandalf. It doesn't really matter because that really wasn't their name anyway. So we're going to call him Gandalf et al. That means and his buddies. Okay, the holy family over here is in purple. Gandalf is in orange. Okay, that's kind of orange up there on the screen. Okay, we believe that Gandalf and his buddies left from likely from Babylon when they saw the light. Okay, they saw the star or whatever, uh, glory cloud, whatever it must have been. We believe that they saw it um, and went west toward Jerusalem. Okay, hit me with that first line. 
Yeah, see, there it is. Okay, cool. All right, so they go west to Jerusalem. They visit with Herod, and then they find out where this uh, newborn king is supposedly to be born, according to the scriptures. And they are told by um, Herod's council, the chief priests and the Sadducees, to go to Bethlehem. Hit me with that next line. So they move to Bethlehem, okay? They go visit the Holy Family, and that's where we're picking up right here. Okay, now go ahead and hit that next line for me, Jeff. All right, now this is really, um, it's hard to make an arrow with the free hand on this thing, you know? I mean, there's probably a way to do it, but I just didn't know how to do it. So, all right, so uh, just like James Taylor sang, they went home by another way. Okay, you all know that James Taylor song. If you don't, you should. It's a great song. He sings a song about the wise men got the news that Herod wanted to kill this baby, and they realized their lives were in danger, so they went home by another way. And this is how this line is reflected right here. They get the news, they head out, and they go this way, likely back to Babylon or wherever they were east of Jerusalem. Okay? And suddenly, that same night, it seems, the holy family moves out and flees under the cover of darkness to Egypt. Okay, it's a geographical chapter. See, everybody's moving. Everybody's going all these different directions. Okay, what happens next? Hit that next line. Okay, and then once they find out that Herod is dead in Jerusalem, excuse me, then the Holy Family leaves and heads toward Nazareth. Chances are they were probably going to be moving back to Bethlehem. I mean, it's the city of David. That's where Jesus was born. It'd be a great place to grow up, right? He would be Jesus of Bethlehem. I mean, that would have some nobility to it, wouldn't it? Because that's the city of David, after all. But that's not where he landed. He landed in Hawk Cove, Texas. Okay, you can leave that up there for a few minutes and then just kind of shut it down here in a minute. Okay, now, these, these Old Testament references are really going to be our guide for the morning. Okay, the first one's in verse 15, the second one's in verse 17, and the third is in verse 23. And I'm going to deal with them out of order. All right, I'm going to deal with them out of order because I really want you most attentive on the first and second one. And the third one is really the easiest. So I'm going to deal with the easiest first. Okay, so I'm going to deal with this issue of Hawk Cove or Nazareth. Why was he, why did the prophets or how did the prophets say that he was supposed to live in Hawk Cove, Texas? So you can go ahead and turn. Actually, you don't even need to turn. Just kind of listen for a moment. And I'll share this thought with you um, kind of made this change here at the last minute, so let me figure out how I'm going to do this. I'm going to save some input for when you're turning to Hosea chapter 11. Let me just deal with, first of all, the easy one. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, Nazareth at the time of Christ's birth had a population of about 480. It's pretty amazing that early historians can give us that kind of detail, that kind of data. And I actually found a place that said they had 483 I don't know how they got that number, but they have 483 people. The closest town that I could find near us with a population of 483 people, because I wanted to visualize this, I thought, man, certainly Cumbie would work. Cumbie has like 800 people. So I thought, well, maybe Campbell will work. Campbell has like 800-something people. Quinlan's got a lot more than that. Okay, so I'm searching around. Neelanville, I'm like, okay, maybe Neelanville. Neelanville has like 100-something people, and they all work or live right next to the liquor store. The whole infrastructure of Neelanville is a liquor store. <laughs> it's crazy. If anybody lives in Neelanville, I'm totally sorry. That was totally a joke. But I did actually find a nearby city called Hawk Cove that's up between uh, Tawakany, Lake Tawakany, and Quinlan. 
and it has four, or at least in the year 2000, I think 2000, 2010, 2010 had 483 people. I'm like, that's perfect. He shall be called a Hawkovian. I mean, isn't that cool? Just think about that for a minute. The point that I'm making there is I think the point that the prophets collectively were making about Jesus. Because here's the reality. Nazareth didn't even exist in the time of the prophets. Nazareth didn't even exist in the Old Testament. Nazareth was an intertestamental city that came about. There was no specific he shall be called a Nazarene. I think the point that's being made there collectively by the prophets is that Jesus was going to be a nobody from nowhere. That's what the prophets said. And Nazareth was nowhere. John has a few little windows into the, the, how um, Nazareth was viewed in the time of Christ. Uh, if you, you, may, you may recall this. You may not, unlikely, but I'll just kind of give you a summary. Whenever um, uh, Philip reached out to his buddy Nathaniel in the book of John, it would be in chapter 1, Nathaniel's one of the first to follow Christ. Philip is also one of his disciples. Philip goes and grabs his buddy Nathaniel and says, hey, we found the Christ. We found the Messiah. And he hails from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Man, Nazareth was Hawk Cove. It was nowhere. It was truly a place where, are you kidding me? Man, it's a beautiful picture of the foolish things confounding the wise. It's a beautiful picture of from the stump shall come a shoot. From nowhere, the stump of Jesse, the dead end that is Jesse, shall come life and a shoot from Nazareth. Okay, that's the easy one first. We're going to spend the rest of our morning on the other two vignettes. And I'll I'll maybe uh, share a couple of passages as we close this morning to help kind of sense the deal or seal seal the deal on he shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, now let's go to Hosea chapter 11. Now, here we're going to pick up where I had intended in Hosea chapter 11. We're going to spend the rest of our morning in Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31. Okay, so be ready. Get your vitamin vitamin water, coffee maybe, power bar. Gel, you know, they got those little gels you can carry around. Start bringing those to church. You might need them. Okay, Hosea chapter 11. Why are you turning there? Let me turn there too. Because I might need to be there as well. I have some visuals for you for this part of the morning as well. And I'll, uh, you can go ahead and put that first slide up and I'll develop this storyline here in a moment. Um, but I want to share this thought. This, this hit me, and this, this is one of those little teachable moments that I love these little teachable moments in the middle of a sermon that's not necessarily the sermon, but it's just too sweet to pass up on, okay? I want you to consider this, that verse 15, verse 17, and verse 23, these Old Testament references aren't only explanations about the context of Jesus' life, okay? They are at least that. And that's how we're really spending our morning is just considering the context of each of these or the rest of our morning. We're going to consider the context of Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31. Okay, but these passages are not only helping us make sense of his context and the context of these references. I want you to consider that these passages are causative. They are causative. Just consider this. Let me develop this for a minute. Joseph remained in Egypt until the death of Herod, 
to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What the Lord had spoken by the prophet caused him to stay where he was. It's a weird way to think about Scripture, but I think it's the right way to think about Scripture. Hey, let me develop this next little part. Joseph remained in Egypt until uh, the death of Herod to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Weeping and loud lamentation of Rachel, that we're going to look at in just a moment, was a fulfillment of what was written by Jeremiah. His being called a Nazarene was a fulfillment of what, the, what was spoken by the prophets. Scripture is so sure, it's actually causative. There's a temptation to read Scripture like, I'll kind of pick and choose the things that I will believe or I think that will come to pass or the promises that I like or the promises I don't think that will come to pass. I want you to consider this. Scripture is causative. Maybe consider for the first time that this ancient book that you ordered on Amazon or maybe picked up at Mardell's or maybe got for Christmas that has your name inscribed on the front is so sure it's causative that what's written in there is so sure it's going to happen because it's causative. It's going to happen. When God said, let there be light, did light have a choice? (gasps) I mean, right? God said, let there be light. Bam! Light happens. God says he shall be a Nazarene. Bam! Where else is he going to live? He works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Bam! That's a promise. For whatever mess you're in, whatever heartbreak people are going through, you can know the scripture is so sure that God is seated on his throne for Randy Daw, for the Daniels. He's seated on his throne for the Spiveys. And he's working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Somehow we may not make sense of it, but we know the scripture is causative. It's true, period. He said, let there be light and bam. Did light have a choice? Okay. That's not even the sermon. It's just so good as we're considering these passages. We can't miss them. Okay, now Hosea 11. This is the reference here in verse 15 from Matthew 2 that says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this is a confession. I'm really embarrassed about this. I was in seminary, okay, went to seminary, what, like 2001, 2000, something like that. I was in seminary before I had a visual of the timeline of the story of Israel. Okay, when there's people talking exodus and exile and eggs and bacon, man, they're all the same for me. Like, whatever, I don't even know where that is. I'm reading books in the Bible. I'm like, who's this guy? Where does he fit in the storyline? And I, it helps me to see the storyline. And even now, I still like to see where things fall out. So I'm going to take about two seconds to develop a little timeline up here that I'm going to leave up here while I'm dealing with Hosea, and then I'm going to add something in while we deal with Jeremiah so you can know where, the, where these things are going down. Okay? All right, first of all, call of Abraham around 2000 B.C. Next. Exodus. Moses is a key figure in there around 1500 B.C. These are the high water marks of the story. If you just remember these few things, our fifth and sixth graders, our third and fourth graders learn this. People, you can learn this. And these numbers are round figures that you can grab hold of. 2,000 years before Christ, call of Abraham. Okay? 1,500 years before Christ, and that's a little, little sign there, that approximately. 15 years before Christ, Moses' key figure, the Exodus. 
nation of Israel is led out of Egypt. That's the exodus, okay? Out of Egypt, I'll call my son, okay? Hint. The next one is King David, around 1,000 years before Christ. Okay, is it on the money, 1,000 years B.C.? Probably not, but it's pretty close where King was um, anointed as, as uh, or David was anointed as king over Israel. Okay, now there's a split in the kingdom around 930 B.C. by his son Rehoboam. This is what makes it so confusing for me. The whole split thing, okay, Rehoboam was a really bad king. He wouldn't listen to counsel of wise counsels, counselors. He rather, he rather listened to his high school buddies, and he made some really bad decisions, and the kingdom was split, okay, split into the north and the south. And I have them geographically sort of to help you. The northern side is Israel, and the southern side is Judah. Israel is uh, all the other tribes. Judah is the tribe of Judah. Okay, so Judah's really small. That's where Jerusalem is. Okay, and Israel is in the north. Okay, you got this split of the kingdom in 930 B.C. Okay, go ahead and hit me with that next one. Okay, Hosea is placed on the timeline there about 750 B.C. Okay, he was a prophet to Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay, and Assyria is where the northern kingdom went into exile. There are actually two exiles. The northern kingdom goes into Assyria. The southern kingdom, you'll see in a moment, goes into Babylon, exile to Babylon. Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. But we're just going to deal with Hosea right now. And we're going to try and figure out what in the wide world of sports is Matthew doing referencing Hosea chapter 11. Okay, so you're there. Hopefully you're there. Let me just go ahead and start reading Hosea chapter 11 beginning in verse 1. All right. Y'all with me? I need to take a breath too. Hold on, I need some vitamin water. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea. Hosea is referencing something that happened. Hosea is right here in 750 B.C. He's referencing something that happened around 1500 B.C. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea, this prophet, prophets oftentimes spoke back, or excuse me, forwards, forthtelling. But they oftentimes, in sort of, in a way to, of making sense of what's coming, they pointed back to what happened. He's calling Israel God's son here. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, let's see what he says next. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. This is a summary of this entire period leading up to 750 B.C., what I'm about to read and what I just read. Sacrificing to, the Baal, to, to Baals, idolatry. Okay, the nation of Israel was guilty of idolatry. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim he's using interchangeably with Israel. Okay? Code name for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness. This is God speaking about Israel. He says, with bands of love, I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king. That's the point that Hosea is making. Instead, in this case, they're going to end up being um, led to Assyria. Assyria is going to be their new king, is what Hosea is saying. It hadn't happened yet, but it's imminent. Okay? They shall not return to the land of Egypt, 
but Assyria shall be their king because they refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me and though they call out to the most high, he shall not raise them up at all. Okay, now this is where we gotta kind of get our hands dirty. We gotta make sense of this. Hosea is saying, he's pointing back to that God drawing them out of, out of Egypt, okay? Calling them his son. I mean, tenderly saying, Ephraim, I taught you how to walk. I led you out of Egypt, and yet Israel, Ephraim, pressed on in idolatry. He says, I loved my son, I called him out of Egypt, and yet he pressed on in idolatry godlessness. And Hosea says, you guys are on the cusp of exile of your own making. You're going to be ripped from your lands in the north and taken to Assyria to populate their courts as their slaves. Man, it's a serious, serious issue these guys are facing. Okay, now, what are the implications of this reference by Matthew? Acquiring minds want to know, you're right, you want to know what is the investment here? Why, why are we studying all this ancient stuff to try and make sense of Matthew's reference? I mean, Jesus was just born, right? What's the big deal? Okay, there's three things that we're going to draw out of the, the implications of this reference. Here's the first reference, or here's the first implication of Matthew saying, Out of Egypt, I will call my son. He's speaking, first of all, that Jesus is the new and better Israel. That's the point of the book of Matthew, people. If you're going to make this years-long investment with us in the book of Matthew, you're going to learn, you're going to hear over and over again that Jesus is the new and better Israel, where Hosea is sort of pointing out the failures of Israel. The beauty is in Christ, where Israel failed, Jesus was faithful. Where Israel sinned, Jesus was sinless. Where Israel fell short, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Okay, that's the first thing. Jesus is the new and better Israel. Here's the second thing. Jesus is the new and better Moses. Jesus is the new and better Moses. As we've been telling this story in Matthew, I wonder if anybody was kind of thinking, man, this kind of sounds familiar. Killing children, killing the boys, you know, being called out of Egypt kind of sounds like Moses, like Moses who led people out of Egypt, Moses who also survived a slaughter. You know where his parents made a little tiny little ark? It's like instead of Mo, Moses' ark, it was Noah's ark, it was a little Moses' ark. One man ark. He's floating in the Nile. Man, that's him. And Jesus is a new and better version of, of who Moses was. Man, the writer here is pointing to this reality of this being a mosaic typology. Moses' story. The sun-killing context, it looks and smells like Moses. Moses, too, was born to lead God's people out of slavery. What, what, what else do you understand about Jesus? Born to lead his people out of slavery to sin and death? Huh. The Exodus as, is a central event to the story of Israel was a symbol, a shadow of a greater work of deliverance that God was yet to accomplish. Man, it's a shadow of some substance that's coming eventually. Man, you know what's interesting is the... the um, the, the prophets, the minor prophets, and well, the major prophets in this case, this would be uh, Jeremiah, actually referenced 
this um, exodus, pointing back to this thing that happened here. He did the same thing that Hosea did, pointing back to this thing here, pointing toward something that God was going to do in another little exodus where he's going to lead his people from Assyria or Babylon back home to Israel. Those were just shadows pointing to some profound exodus led by the new and better Moses. See, what I want you to understand is a new exodus is brewing with a new and better Moses, one who, too, also survived the slaughter of the boys. There's a passage in Revelation that I've enjoyed for years that sort of points to this picture. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse, excuse me, Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. I want you to hear this because it's a beautiful passage, something that we will hear someday, I hope and believe. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This picture of the end times where God is drawing his people out of the world is a beautiful picture of the substance that was shadowed in the initial exodus and then the exodus from the exiles. Okay, so Jesus is the New and better Israel. Jesus is the new and better Moses. And third, this is what's most difficult and really most frightening. Israel is the new and better Egypt. Israel is the new and better Egypt. If you have Matthew handy, I want you to look back at Matthew and just kind of, I want to show you something that's really just kind of crazy. It's trying to make sense of why Matthew would use this term, this reference, out of Egypt I call my son, in this passage where he's talking about Jesus fleeing from Israel to Egypt. I mean, you remember the geography there. He fled from Israel to Egypt. Okay, I want you to just think about that for a minute. He fled from Israel to Egypt, yet the reference is, out of Egypt I will call my son. If there's really a place that seems like Matthew would want to put that passage, it would be between verses 20 and 21, where uh, Joseph gets this, this, this second dream that says, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child. You would think that would be the place where he's actually being called out of Egypt, back to Israel. I, I don't think Matthew like wrote it like with his quill. You know, he's like, oh, made a mistake there. I really wanted to put that later on, but I put it there too early. Let me scratch that out. He put that there on purpose because Israel had become the new and better Egypt. This isn't the first time that God has renamed something based on how they're moving. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's speaking of Judah. He's speaking of Jerusalem. Has sort of been renamed. There's a passage in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8. It says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Man, he's making the point right here that Israel is the new and better Egypt. Israel is better at being godless Egypt than godless Egypt. 
Now, it might be hard for you at this point. I'm, I'm realizing, kind of seeing faces right now. I'm like, okay, how does this all connect? Let me just kind of help you think about this. The bondage that Israel offered to their people at the time of Christ's coming was really very little different from, I want you to go make bricks with no straw. Man, it's a picture of dead works. A picture of godless religion. Man, it's bankrupt. It's futile. Making bricks with no straw is a beautiful image of the futility of this time. And Israel is beautifully symbolizing the picture that they should be fittingly renamed Egypt. So this reference to out of Egypt I will call my son and this specific place where Matthew put it says three things. It says Jesus is the new and better Israel. It says Jesus is the new and better Moses. And Israel has become the new and better Egypt. They're better at being godless than Egypt was. But here's the beauty in Hosea. Chapter 11, verse 8. Here's the beauty. You've done some hard work with me. I want you to listen to this now. Okay? Hosea chapter 11, verse 8. This is the, the character of our God. He says, I led you out of Egypt. I taught you to walk. Ephraim. I called you Ephraim. I cared for you. And yet you betrayed me. You practiced idolatry. And then in verses 8 and 9, listen to the character of this God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? You're going to Assyria. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God, not a man. Thank goodness. I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Here's the crazy picture and the beautiful connection for why Matthew fittingly referenced this passage. God is relentlessly loving and will make a way for his headstrong people. Good news, anybody? Via union to this new and better son, to this new and better Israel, to this new and better Moses by faith. God says, I'll make a way for Ephraim, despite the fact that you don't deserve it. And I'll make a, a way for humankind. Despite, or what's the guy's name? Gandalf. Despite the fact that you and your buddies and et al. don't deserve it. Because that's the kind of God that I am. I will make a way and his name is Jesus. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. A new and better son, a new and better Israel, a new and better Moses. Man, that's good news. All right, Jeremiah 31, last place I want you to go. Go ahead and turn there. Jeremiah chapter 31, page 658 of your Bible that you have near you. Let me, get, let me uh, point out where we are on this line. Go ahead and get, yeah, show Jeremiah here. Jeremiah is in the southern kingdom. He's a prophet to the southern kingdom. Around 600 B.C. or so, uh, that's kind of when he served, kind of centering around 600 B.C. And this is leading up to the exile into Babylon. Okay? Now, I almost want to have everybody just stand up and shake it out. 
So we just regroup, okay? These were too small for three tiny sermons, but I know it's making for a sizable mouthful. And that's why I really, man, if there's really a sweet spot, it's maybe even going back and listening again to that last section, but really paying attention to this next section in Jeremiah 31. Because if there's really a sweet spot to the sermon, it's what's coming in these next few minutes. So if you kind of like, ah, kind of, I need to regroup, like really, really hunker down and regroup. Okay, I'll throw you my vitamin water. Okay, Jeremiah 31. Okay, this, is, this reference here comes from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was a prophet during the last five kings of Judah leading into the exile. So he was a prophet for a long time. He did in the south very much what Hosea was doing in the north, was saying exile's coming. The way you guys are moving, you're moving, uh, you're moving faithlessly, and exile is coming. And exile for us is going to mean Babylon. Okay? Now, the, the difficult disciplinary circumstances of the exile is what's being referenced here in this passage that he quotes. And it's in verse 15 of chapter 31. Let's just look at it so we see it. I want you to see it. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Okay, in context here, in the book of Jeremiah, what's going on there is people being loaded up and moved to Ramah before they head off to Babylon. Okay, I was thinking about this would be kind of like Auschwitz. Not quite the same because Auschwitz is where they like lived, but where they're led away to the chambers. Years ago, Christy and I lived in Columbia, South Carolina, and we got a chance to go to Charleston. If you ever get a chance to go to Charleston, South Carolina, you need to go to the slave market. You need to go to the slave market and imagine what it must have been like for families to be ripped from one another. The auction block there is three feet high, ten feet long. Feel the horrors of that. And imagine the horrors of what that must have been like. That's Rhema. Here, Rachel, by this point, is dead and gone. But she's sort of the, the, the symbolic mother of Israel. And she weeps over her children. Like in this case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are standing there at Ramah. They're going to be led off to Babylon. Daniel, standing there, Belteshazzar, standing there in Ramah. He's going to be led off to be a slave in some, someone's court. Man, that's some fitting tears. Matthew grabbed some really good tears right there, didn't he? Imagine being a parent of a two-year-old boy in Bethlehem. You got some tears? Man, you could hear in these words, ah, yeah, Rachel's tears are fitting. Man, you can draw on that pain of Auschwitz and Charleston. The exiles were gathered there for the march to Babylon in 586 B.C., Jeremiah was likely among them, though he wasn't led off to Babylon. And Matthew applies that imagery here with the mourning and weeping over the slaughter of Bethlehem's boys. Herod killed them, and they are no more. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful passage to fit to the grief of, of Bethlehem. Those tears in Ramah are fitting tears. Jeremiah is mourning via Rachel the tragedy of the exile. But in the same chapter, 
If you only read verse 15, you would miss out on the point of the same chapter or what's going on in Jeremiah 31. That verse 15 stands alone in that chapter. It stands alone as a heartbreaking passage, imagining the tears of Rachel. I want us to step back and sort of pan out and see what else is going on in that chapter because it's so important to making sense of what Matthew's saying about Jesus. Can you do that with me? Can you hunker down with me and just go to that? Let's look there in chapter 31, beginning in verse 5. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. That's a reference to the Exodus right there. Jeremiah's Jeremiah's doing the same thing Hosea did. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you. I know you're all lined up. You're lined up there at Ramah. I know the tears are flowing right now, but I promise you, your mourning is going to be turned to joy is the spirit of what's being shared right now. They're standing there at the slave market, and they got this good news that's coming to them. Again, I will build you. I'll bring you back together. You shall be built, O virgin Israel. What kind of God is going to call them a virgin at this point? A gracious and merciful and benevolent and loving father. A relentlessly forgiving and loving father. O marines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. Look at verse 7. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. Man, this chapter is about the joyful promise of what he has yet to do. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water and in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. This chapter is not ultimately about Rachel's tears. It's not ultimately about being ripped from Judah And led to Babylon. It's ultimately about a beautifully gracious and benevolent father in God that loves his people relentlessly. And this reference to Jeremiah 31, this email I sent out this week, I was thinking, man, it's so hard. I was just imagining what would would it be like to preach in first testament or uh, first century context? Where Jeremiah 31 would have been old hat to everybody. Matthew quotes a passage in Jeremiah 31, and everyone immediately goes to Jeremiah 31 knowing the context. What we just spent a few minutes on, they would know automatically, likely. But we have to do a little work and just listen to what develops in the rest of this chapter. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read one little section on the next page, beginning in um, chapter 31, where he talks of a new covenant. 
Got to find it. 31. 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Man, this is in, the, the ink is still wet from where he's talking about Rachel's tears. I can't help but believe that Matthew has that in view. If Matthew just wanted a teary passage to talk about the tears of Bethlehem moms and dads, he could have found a passage anywhere in our Bible. But he landed right here, within stone's throw, within wet ink distance of this promise of a new and better covenant that will come at the hands and the work of a new and better son, a new and better Israel, a new and better Moses, who will die on a cross and bear our sins. That's the good news of this chapter. That's the good news of that reference to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31. Man, there's a reference here in a connection to the one who would accomplish the law being written on the hearts of people. Instead of on stone, it'll be written on the soft, fleshy hearts of each of us and the people of God. It would bring to mind, too, that God, through the work of this fine son, this new and better son, would be accessible from the least to the greatest. The priests are going to be out of work, unemployed, because from the least of you to the greatest of you, you have access to the living God through the finished work of this son, this new and better son. Man, that's in stone, so that's in wedding distance. Man, Matthew got to have that in view. Third, lastly, through this new and better son would be mercy toward iniquity and amnesia toward sin because he would pay for our sins. Man, talk about an exodus. Talk about a new and better Moses. No more brick making. No more slavery to sin and death. No more brick making with no, no, no uh, straw. No more brick making, period. By our union with him, his perfect life would be reckoned ours. And our sin would be reckoned his. And his payment for sin would be reckoned ours. That's the scandal of the gospel. That's the scandal of this work. And this is what Matthew is pointing to. Man, I want you to think about it like this. It's like we got married. It's like you got married and you had massive credit card debt. You couldn't pay your bills, man. And you're, you're making a little wee payment here, but the interest is greater than your payment. But you got married to someone who's rich, and that paid off all your debts. And then all the riches that were his became yours. Man, that's a beautiful picture of what union with this good and better perfect son means that those things were accomplished, this new and better covenant was accomplished through this great husband. He is so rich. He paid the penalties, the interest, and the debt. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah is a chapter of hope and restoration. That verse 15 reference is the only dark one. <laughs> and it's only there because Rachel's grief is no longer 
fitting. This new and better son, this new and better Israel is in view through those tears of loss in Bethlehem. Through the sadness of the exile in Ramah and the sadness of the slaughter of the sons of Bethlehem, you can see his shape, you can see his form, his movement, and know that he has officially turned mourning to joy. He has comforted them and given them gladness for sorrow. The takeaways this morning are three, just three small things, and we've considered them as we've considered each of these passages. First of all, he's a contrary king from nowhere, a nobody from nowhere. He's lowly and despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a nobody from Hawk Cove. Secondly, God loved Ephraim enough and the world enough, as disappointing as he is, as disappointing as we are, to make a way for us of this new and better Moses and this new and better Israel and this new and better son called Jesus. He is how, precisely how, surgically how God has loved us. Come out of her, my people, and follow Jesus. Lastly, This son, this new and better son, is the guarantor of a new and better covenant. He has done through his work, through his life, his death, and resurrection, what the old one could not do. What countless priests could not accomplish, this durable priest that lives and reigns and rules, made a final sacrifice once and for all times for your sins and mine. Man, it's a new and better covenant. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful for your word. Lord, I pray that you will help this, uh, these truths sort of settle, find a home in, in folks as they talk and discuss, maybe in life groups as they process and wrangle over these things and try and make sense of what this all means and what it has to do with life in Greenville in 2019. Or what I'm thankful for is that we had a chance these last few minutes to sort of forget ourselves just for a few minutes. And to consider and learn more about the Savior that we're going to worship for eternity. He is a good son. He is a new and better Moses, a new and better Israel. He is our Savior, our groom. Uh, We love him and we love you. Thank you so much, Father. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Our supper this morning will be from Luke chapter 22. Um, I want to just give you this uh, sort of development as we distribute the elements here in a moment. That I want to encourage you to take these elements and the, the bread and the cup if you are trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you are united to him by faith, that's what that means. If you are trusting him as your Savior, it means in some ways that you are married to him, that you, along with the, the bride of Christ, the people of God, are married to this perfect, fine son. And this meal is for you, if that's the case. If, if you're not trusting Christ as your Savior and Lord, then this is not for you. This supper that we take each week was instituted a couple thousand years ago on the night of Christ's arrest. They'd been practicing for 1,500 years before that. 
It was called the Passover meal. And like some of the shadows that we've talked about today that end up being substance later, the shadow in that case was the Passover meal. And here's the substance. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new and better thing. It's a new and better thing that I've been planning and been working toward for a couple thousand years. This new and better thing is the thing that we walk in right now. This cup that is poured out for you, that was poured out 2,000 years ago, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's distribute the almonds.